Welcome back to Certain Comfort in Uncertain Times. A look at the book of Revelation that we are filming during the COVID-19 crisis in 2020, a year that is also here in America been filled with a lot of political and societal unrest as there's been protests around the country, a presidential election that uh, got very heated, of course, as many do in recent years. And we've been looking at the book of Revelation, uh, not merely because it feels like we're living in apocalyptic times, uh, but because the book of Revelation was written to provide certain comfort in these uncertain times that we live in. It's precisely written to churches living in the end times from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ to provide them that comfort. And yet even in providing comfort, the book is not, uh, does not always appear to be very comforting. There are, are many scenes within the book uh, that uh, do seem somewhat scary or do seem somewhat confusing or do seem somewhat unsafe. And we come to one of those passages here in Revelation 17, uh, and this chapter is not exactly Sunday school friendly. This is not a chapter we're probably opening up and reading to our children on a Sunday morning as we, as we sit in a church classroom. Uh, but it's precisely these chapters throughout Scripture that don't feel very safe, that can provide us with comfort. And this chapter uh, does provide some of that, uh, even in the midst of a lot of symbolism, even in the midst of a lot of symbolism that we may be uncomfortable with. And so we are going to look at Revelation chapter 17 today. I encourage you to follow along if you have your Bibles open. And then we'll look at three uh, things that this passage brings out that can give us a certain comfort as we try and navigate these uncertain times. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me. Come, I will show you the judgment of the notorious prostitute who is seated on many waters. The kings of the earth committed sexual immorality with her, and those who live on the earth became drunk on the wine of her sexual immorality. Then he carried me away in the spirit to a wilderness. I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, jewels, and pearls. She had a golden cup in her hand filled with everything detestable and with the impurities of her prostitution. On her head was written a name, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes, and of the detestable things of the earth. Then I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Then the angel said to me, Why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast, with the seven heads and the ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not, and is about to come up from the abyss and go to destruction. Those who live on the earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will be astonished when they see the beast that was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind that has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come. 
and when he comes, he must remain for only a little while. The beast that was and is not is itself an eighth king, but it belongs to the seventh and is going to destruction. The ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they will receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. These have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war against the lamb, but the lamb will conquer them because he is Lord of lords and King of kings. Those with him are called, chosen, and faithful. He also said to me, the waters you saw where the prostitute was seated are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. The ten horns you saw on the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked, devour her flesh, and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his plan by having one purpose and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman you saw is the great city that has royal power over the kings of the earth. There is a lot of symbolism in this chapter, a lot of numbers in this chapter. And again, I think our temptation is to uh, try and figure out what we don't know, figure out what the symbolism is that we don't know, figure out what the numbers mean. And of course, we're not doing that here in this series. We're looking at the things that we do know, uh, so the things that we are certain about, that they might give us certain comfort in uncertain times. And so uh, about the numbers, I'll just say that the numbers are most likely not literal. They probably are symbolic, and so we don't need to try and count kingdoms and what kingdoms might be and what kingdoms might still be to come because I don't think the numbers are meant to be literal. But this chapter itself uh, helps us to, to figure out uh, who the, the woman is and, and what this chapter is trying to tell us. And so that's what we're going to do here today. We're going to look at the things that we are pretty certain about that we might find that certain comfort in uncertain times. And so there's three truths that I think this chapter brings out that can help provide comfort. And the first is that there are only two sides. There are only two sides. <clears throat> that is a, a theme that has been running through the past several chapters. As repeatedly over and over and over again, we have seen that you can only be on one of two sides. You're either with the beast, with the world system, or with the lamb. And that continues on here as we pick up with this story about this woman, this prostitute. And uh, we, we, it might seem counterintuitive our, as we've read through this chapter 17 so far, and we come across this woman in chapter 17, we might be tempted to think that her counterpart was the woman back in chapter 12, where we saw the woman and the dragon and the male child. But the, the counterpart to this prostitute in chapter 17 is not the woman of chapter 12, but the woman that we will eventually meet in chapter 21, the bride of Christ. This prostitute that shows up here in chapter 7 is the counterpart to the bride 
of Christ in chapter 21. And if you compare the two chapters, there are a lot of similarities, even in how the woman here in chapter 17 is described and how the bride is described in chapter 1, how they come upon the, the scene. Uh, there are a lot of similarities. They're, put, they're getting put in contrast to one another. As Christ has his pure and spotless bride, so the beast has his used and ravaged harlot. The beast and all that he sets up, as we've seen in the past few chapters, are mere parodies to what the lamb has. And this continues here in chapter 17, right down to the beast being referred to as the one who was, is not, and is to come. Even as Jesus is described throughout Revelation as the one who, is, who was, who is, and who is to come. The authority of the beast, the beauty of this woman, they may appear at first glance to rival that of the lamb and his bride, but will in the end be shown to be mere parodies of the lamb and his bride. And so we see these two sides once again being set up. You are either uh, one with the, the harlot, one with the, the beast committing sexual immorality with the beast, or you are one with the bride married to Christ, married to the Lamb. And there is no middle ground. Now, if you're watching this, this series, chances are you, you probably uh, agree with this. Um, but how we put that into effect in our life can sometimes be a little harder. Because we are so tempted, even in very subtle ways, to think that we can serve two, two masters, even though Jesus himself told us that we can't. As we're filming this over the past several days, there was uh, some minor controversy on social media as... Um, one of the candidates for the Senate in Georgia, uh, who is also an ordained minister uh, running for the Democratic Party, had made mention in, I guess, a sermon or a message somewhere that you cannot serve both Christ and the military. And of course, the Republicans seized on this and made a big deal out of it that he was uh, denigrating the military and denigrating Christians who serve and uh, there was all kinds of back and forth. And I didn't see the original full clip, uh, so I don't know what was taken out of context, what the man's original point was. But I will say that the fact that Christians get so riled up with the statement that you cannot serve both Christ and something else is a sign that we already have a problem. Because Jesus himself tells us that we cannot serve both God and something else. Matthew 6, 24, Jesus said, No one can serve two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And what my translation puts is money, of course, in many translations, is left as the word mammon. And my preferred translation of mammon here in this verse is that you cannot serve both God and stuff. Whatever that stuff is, fill in the blank. You cannot serve both God and whatever earthly thing we are tempted to put in that second blank. And so, while it may not be true that you can't serve God and serve in the military, it is true that you cannot serve God and serve the military. Just like you cannot serve God and serve 
the country, serve the job, serve the family, serve the political party, the presidential candidate, uh, your reputation, whatever that earthly thing is that we're tempted to put in that second blank, you cannot serve both God and that thing. And that's something we need to be continually reminded of. And Revelation continually reminds us of that. That you cannot serve this world system and any aspect of it and serve Christ. There is no middle ground. There is no fence sitting. You are either of Christ or you are of the world. Now, of course, in any given moment, we might be be of Christ and tempted to, to serve the world or dabbling our foot. And so Revelation continually calls us back to serve the Lamb. But the fact of the matter is, is that we cannot serve both. We cannot serve both God and mammon. We cannot serve both the Lamb and the beast. We cannot serve God and earthly things. And so there are only two sides. We're once again reminded of that. But secondly, you are unable to choose the right side. You are unable to choose the right side. One of the astonishing things about the similarities between how the prostitute is described in chapter 17 and how the bride of Christ is described in chapter 21 is that it's the same man doing the describing. Uh, John is describing both of them, and he describes the prostitute here in chapter 17 almost in glowing terms. Uh, describing her appearance, describing her her beauty and the jewels that she's adorned with and the clothing that she's wearing. Uh, He's astonished by her horrific names and her horrific acts as the the chapter goes on because they seem in contrast to how she appears. And in fact, commentators believe that John is carried away by the Spirit into the wilderness in verse 3 precisely to keep him from falling down in worship of this woman, to keep him from falling down in worship of the beast that is manipulating her. And so, uh, I mean, we see that later on in in the book where he'll almost fall down to worship an angel and the angel will have to stop him. And so uh, John, who is um, writing this book, is, is captivated by this woman, just as he will be by the bride in chapter 21. And this is where, uh, even though the, the fact that we are unable to choose the right side may not appear to be a comfort, this is where we need to learn that we cannot choose the right side in and of ourselves. Because this is what we see in this particular time period is, again, we are on the tail end of a presidential election season, and we are Uh, inundated with conspiracy theories that even uh, genuine believers are falling, uh, falling for day after day after day. And one of the things that I think we struggle with and why we get so wrapped up in these conspiracy theories, why we get so easily fooled, uh, by, by uh, fake news and by conspiracy websites and, and by random people purporting to know the truth is that we like to think That because of our intelligence, our faithfulness, our spiritual discernment, we are able to see the truth. 
The truth has to be something that we are able to grasp and wrap our mind around. And so if we can't grasp and wrap our mind around it, it must not be truth. And if we can wrap our mind around it, then it must be truth. We rely on our own intelligence and faithfulness and discernment. And so I I really do think we need to see that the Apostle John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, a man who had an intimate relationship with Jesus during his earthly life, and who by this point had spent decades in an intimate relationship with him in the Spirit, leading churches, bringing people to Christ, writing books of the Bible, that this man seems to be ready to fall down and worship the prostitute. And that the only reason he doesn't is because he's snatched up by the Spirit and put out in the wilderness to watch the scene from a distance. And the only reason he knows what's going on is because of the ministry of the Spirit removing him and revealing the truth to him. And that is the only way that we can discern and choose the right side is through the ministry of the Spirit and the ministry of the Word. It is through revelation, God revealing the truth to us, that we can discern the right side. It has nothing to do with our intelligence, nothing to do with our faithfulness, nothing to do with whatever spiritual discernment we might think we have. We are not going to choose the right side by uh, trying to find the, the, the fault in an article in the New York Times and comparing it to an article that we saw on some other website that no one's ever heard of and trying to, to balance them out and figure out which one is fake and which one is real, which one is telling the truth and which one is lying. The only way we will ever be able to discern between the, the lamb and the beast is when the Lamb Himself reveals it to us. When the Spirit of God is able to apply the Word of God to us and help us to see. That's why it says that in verse 9 that this calls for a mind that has wisdom. This calls for a mind that has wisdom. That's the only way we will ever be able to discern is as the the wisdom of God, both in His Word, but more importantly in the wisdom of God that is Jesus Christ, opens our eyes to see. And perhaps nothing shows how perhaps willfully blind we are as the way we interpret passages like this. Because this does call for a mind that has wisdom, not wisdom of this world or of this age, but real, biblical, godly wisdom. Because even how we might be tempted to identify this woman. Because this woman is clearly symbolic. She's called Babylon, but she's described like Rome. Uh, And so it seems to be that this is a spirit rather than a particular city. Uh, That this this woman is standing in for for the, the Babylon of the Old Testament, the Rome of the New Testament. That this is the uh, a spirit that rises up in different cities of different, in different countries in different ages. And the description of this woman and where she sits on many waters indicates a political, economic, and religious power. 
a nation that uses its power to spread its political, economic, and religious influence around the world. And as good patriotic Americans, our temptation is just to think of this woman as being a totalitarian regime like North Korea, or maybe a stronger one like China, or a previous generation might have said the Soviet Union. But we could equally and justly apply it to America. A political, economic, and religious power that uses its power to spread its political, economic, and religious influence around the world. That is the United States of America. And that's not to say that America is wholly bad, but we are too ready to uh, attach America to the bride of Christ and not ready enough to attach America to the harlot. And yet this is what it says uh, in verse 15. He also said to me, the waters you saw where the prostitute was seated are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. Uh, this woman and where she sits influences nations and people and languages around the world. And so it very readily could be described, could be uh, applied to America. And that's where we, as American Christians, when we are trying to identify and discern based on our own intelligence and our own faithfulness and our own discernment, our own ability to work things out, we're eventually going to just identify things to what makes it easy and convenient for us. And in doing so, many of us end up misidentifying the kingdom of the beast for the kingdom of the lamb. And this is, again, what time and time again over these past few chapters, John has been urging us to see. That the Lamb's kingdom and the kingdoms of this world are incompatible. And we can only serve one. And when he opens our eyes to see, again, not to denigrate our country, not to, to say it's the worst country that's ever existed, but when he opens our eyes to see the, the real faults in our country, the, the real ways that our country has abused the poor, abused the powerless, the real ways that our country has not been in line with the values of the kingdom of the Lamb. That's grace when he allows us to see that because he's allowing us to see and choose the right side. And it is only when we are citizens of the Lamb's kingdom first that we can be the best citizens we can be of our earthly kingdom. And so we cannot uh, choose on our own the right Side, We cannot discern the right side on our own. It is not up to our intelligence. But when we pray for the Spirit to reveal to us the kingdom of the Lamb and pray for Him to reveal to us the kingdom of the beast, we will see that disparity. And as good citizens, that means, especially in a democratic nation where our country is lining up with the values of the Lamb, yes and amen, let's support that. And when it is not lining up with the values of the kingdom of the Lamb, then we need to side with the kingdom 
of the Lamb, even if that means being subversive to the earthly kingdom. And so there are only two sides, and you cannot choose the right one. And then thirdly, those on the Lamb's side win. Those on the Lamb's side win. And this, of course, is the greatest, most certain comfort that we can have in these uncertain times, that those on the Lamb's side win. There are only two sides, and we cannot choose the right one ourselves, but once we are on the Lamb's side, we are assured of victory. Verses 13 and following, these have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will conquer them, because He is Lord of lords and King of kings, Those with him are called, chosen, and faithful. He also said to me, The waters you saw where the prostitute was seated are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. The ten horns you saw on the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked, devour her flesh, and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his plan by having one purpose, and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman you saw is the great city that has royal power over the kings of the earth. And there's two things, two important things that we need to note in this passage, uh, in these last few verses of the chapter. Is that first, as the kingdoms of this world wage war against the Lamb, it is the Lamb who wins. It is the Lamb who conquers them. Because the Lamb is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. As we've said over these past few weeks, we have this temptation that we have to fight. And even if we are not in a period where we are fighting physical crusades and going to to physical war against the enemies of the cross, we do uh, wage war in, in even things like the culture wars where we might not be swinging a sword, but we are certainly wounding people and destroying people, uh, thinking that we need to do something to take the country back for Jesus. And yet time and time again throughout these chapters, we've seen that the people of the Lamb are called to the way of the Lamb. They are not called to fight, they are called to die. And it is through their death that they win. It is, it is through their death that the Lamb conquers the beast. And it is the Lamb who conquers them through the cross. And as we participate in the cross, that we participate in the victory of the cross. And therefore, it is the Lamb who conquers them, because He is Lord of lords and King of kings. Those with Him are called, chosen, and faithful. Called, chosen, and faithful. Those are the three words that are used to describe the people of the Lamb. We do not fight, we accompany the Lamb in His victory. We are called, chosen, and faithful. That is how we participate in the victory of the Lamb. That having been called and having been chosen, we now remain faithful to the Lamb and to His cross. And so, it is not we who fight, it is the Lamb who fights, and by His grace, as we remain faithful, we participate in the victory of the cross. But then secondly, even when it appears that we are losing, 
even when it appears as though we are being defeated, when the, the, the people of the Lamb are being persecuted and slaughtered and struck down, even when it seems like the, the nations are winning, they are only fulfilling the very will of God. God has put it into their hearts to carry out His plan by having one purpose and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. Even as the beast and the nations who serve him are warring against the lamb and his people, all they are doing are fulfilling the will of God. They are waging war against him and yet fulfilling his will. Just as Judas tried to do things his own way to keep Jesus from from going to the cross, to try and provoke him. And yet even in doing that, Judas was participating in the will of God. By manipulating Judas, Satan had actually brought about the will of God. And so the same thing happens throughout the church age. When it seems like the nations are winning, as they war against the Lamb and his people, they are fulfilling the will of God. Craig Keener summarizes it, this way, God's saints suffer for now, but God's purposes in history will prevail. God's purposes in history will prevail. And that is our certain hope in uncertain times. And yet we so often forget that, and that's why we need the book of Revelation. We need the book of Revelation read correctly. Because so often we are looking around at headlines to try and figure out what this means and coming up with all these different theories and maps and charts and dates and doing all sorts of things, forgetting that the point is that God's purposes in history will prevail. And we take the same approach to living the Christian life. We start to read newspaper headlines and we get so wrapped up in in politics and controversies and conspiracies and we start to, to worry about the state of the world and the state of our country and the things that we're experiencing And we start to worry about persecution. We start to worry about this and about that. And we forget that no matter what is happening now, even when we suffer now, we are assured that God's purposes and history will prevail. And that as this passage tells us, even, even if our nation fully goes over to the beast and openly wages war on the church, That will not be something outside of God's plan. That will be fulfilling God's plan. And that ultimately, out of that apparent defeat, he will bring about his victory. Again, the overarching theme of the book of Revelation is not really Christ's second return. It's the cross. And once again, here in chapter 17, we, without the word ever being mentioned, the cross is put front and center. That the way of the Lamb is the way that leads to victory. And that even when it seems like we are in defeat, even when we are suffering, even when we are dying, God's purposes in history will prevail because His purposes in history are what's being played out even here and now. And as we fix our attention on that, that through the cross, God's purposes in history will prevail. That we will be able to see clearly the two sides. And we will be able to 
go through life, even in apparent defeat, comforted with the fact that those on the Lamb's side win. That we will accompany the Lamb as He walks in victory, as those who are called, chosen, and faithful. And so that's my encouragement as we wrap up, that as we live through these uncertain times, as we are tempted to be pulled into political controversies, sucked in by conspiracy theories, as we are tempted to wage war in whatever uh, form that takes against our fellow citizens, against our fellow country, our, our fellow uh, countrymen, our fellow believers, that we remember that God's purposes in history will prevail. And therefore, as the called and the chosen, we are simply called to be faithful. That we are called to follow the Lamb wherever He goes. As we walk the way of the cross. Thank you for joining us as we've looked at Revelation chapter 17. And join us next time for Revelation chapter 18.